I'm Tom Henley, and this is Saga. Today I'm not going to do too much talking. Instead, I'll hand the microphone over to today's subject straight away. Bill Schiller. A man whose story crosses decades and continents. A man whose life changed forever when he chose to go against the grain. So, here he is, Bill Schiller, in all his wonderful glory. Born in Chicago, family German-Austrian, grew up in the northwest side of Chicago, which was then the German-speaking area. Everything was German, the school, the church, the newspaper, the cinema, all the neighbors were speaking German, and that's the first language I had when I was very, very small. And then suddenly you come out into the real world, and because it was right after the war, German was not a very welcome language, and I know some of my colleagues got beaten up in the street if they had Lederhosen or something German because the tide had changed and the happy German attitude had changed into a very much anti-Hitler, anti-German feeling in Chicago. Hollywood was producing all of these war films right during the war and after the war. And the Germans were vicious. They were throwing babies into the fire and they were raping nuns. And that went on for years and years until someone decided to change the picture and said, wait a minute, Germany is going to be an ally against the communists. We need Germany. So they toned down these anti-German films and the Germans became our allies and buddies, at least the Western Germans. My mother was working class, later a nurse, pushing me to the university, saying, don't be like the rest of our family, get to the university. I went to the University of Champaign-Urbana, Illinois University, and studied there. And I knew I wanted to go abroad. The Peace Corps opened its doors. It was the first two years of the Peace Corps. So I signed up for the Peace Corps right after graduation, and they sent me to Peru. So I was there in Peru for a year. You're supposed to be there for two years. The bosses, both black and white, were not very effective. We had some trouble criticizing the bosses for not doing a good job. I don't go into the details other than to say one young woman was having mental problems and should have been sent home. And the bosses refused to do this because they thought this would show a bad sign on their program on their administration, but other Peace Corps people got sent back from India and Pakistan all the time. Some people simply didn't fit in, in a slum area in in uh, New Delhi or somewhere. And they refused to send this woman back, and we thought it was very detrimental for her to be locked up in a house, hating the place and hating the Peruvians. And we criticized, and they didn't like that. So I finally decided that I would leave the Peace Corps, I'd stay in Peru. The bosses came and said, you must go home. And I said, no, I'm not going home. I've got no trouble with the Peruvians. I have trouble with you people. Here's what happened when I quit the Peace Corps. I said, look, I don't need you people. I can teach English at the university for the same money I'm getting in the Peace Corps. Because the Peace Corps, you were supposed to get a very small amount so that you could live in the slum area 
along with the people. You're not supposed to be a millionaire in the slum area throwing your money around. You got very little. And I said, I can get that at the university teaching an hour uh, um, a day. The bosses, who were my best friends, and I make friends quite easily, said, you must go. Everybody else is wondering, why is the crazy Schiller still here? He's quit the Peace Corps. He's still, why is he still in Peru? I said, I'm doing my work. I don't like you guys. I like the Peruvians. You must go. I said, I'm not going. They called me into the embassy in the evening, and I actually had a, an empty suitcase with a sculpture work, a piece of wood that I knew my mother would like if I get thrown out of the country. I come there with an empty suitcase, and they said, would you like to uh, get on a plane and go? No, I'm not going. Two Marines came without uniform, but they were hunky, beefy kind of guys, and said, you're on your way to the airport. I'm not going. And they pulled me into a limousine, drove me to the airport. I'm not going. And they put me on a plane with my empty suitcase and a piece of sculpture work. I flew off. But with me, they had a colleague, a good friend of mine, said, I am forced to, to fly with you to make sure you get to the Peace Corps office back in Washington, D.C. Okay. We flew. I was kind of tired, exhausted was thrown out of a country by this country that's supposed to love me, came to Washington, D.C., and you just revive these memories. We get to the airport. This very nice Peace Corps administrator said, Bill, what are you going to do? I have no money, not $2. How am I going to get a bus from Washington to Chicago? I give you the money. Okay, he gave me the money or lent me the money. Then he said, but you must come to the Peace Corps office. I said, I'm not going. You got a free trip, thanks to me. You go to the Peace Corps office and Bill is complaining about the bad administration. You go. I'll have to call the police. He called the police. So suddenly some police came and surrounded us. And then before you blinked, you know how Americans are, there were 400 Americans standing there waiting to see what the criminal was going to do, what was going to be a shootout or what was going to happen. The police said, what's the story here? My friend, the boss, said, he shall go to the Peace Corps office. And I said, I'm not going. The police said, he's not going. And they walked off. <laughs> and I thought there's some righteousness as much as the police can be vicious and hateful and shoot blacks and shoot Latinos. They have at least once in a while a heart. So we sat there, waited for the bus for a couple of hours. Then after a begging, please come to the Peace Corps office. I went with him. And you have to know another element of this story. When I was in the training, I had just come from Europe and saw my family in Austria, and a lot of young Europeans had beards. So I came back to the States with a beard, University of Illinois. It's in the Corn Belt. It's not, not California. It's not New York. It's corn property. Anyway, agricultural giant university like most of the state universities. I had a beard. When I got called into Peace Corps training, I still had the beard. And the bosses said, no beards. Fidel Castro is a symbol for Latin American revolution. You will take this beard off. No. If I get approved after the three months in Mexico and San Diego, California, I'll take it off. Before that, I won't do it. The next few days, other people started to have beards. So the boss called me in and said, 
everybody's got a beard. What are you doing? You've got to take that beard off. And he said, nobody is going to Peru. Nobody is going to the Peace Corps with a beard. The next day, everybody's beard was gone. They came to me during the night and said, what will we do? I said, look, we're not past yet. The training is not over yet. We don't have to worry about Fidel Castro images. Let's wait and see what happens, because people were getting kicked out all the time. The next day, I was the only one with a beard. Only one. LeBron said, okay, you promised to take it off at, if you get approved? Okay, I'll take it off. And I did. I took it off when I went to Peru. But about six months later, some of my good friends, Peruvians, university age, were having beards. And I said to the Peace Corps administration, they got beards? I want a beard. My beard is coming back. It came back. And this made them angry. Okay, backtrack. I got called into the Peace Corps office. And the first thing they said, what is this about the beard? I said, we have solved the beard question long before. That's not a problem. A problem is that I'm quite critical of the administrators. They didn't do their job. They didn't take care of the people who were in mental trouble. They were taking some people to dine in luxury restaurants, and the other people were in the slum areas puking with diarrhea. That's not a good way to treat people. You're all in the slum, or you're all in the luxury hotel. You can't divide people. And that's why we criticize them. Okay, would you like to go to India? I said, no, I got work to do in Peru. I'm teaching in Peru. I live in Peru. I'm not going to India. You cannot go back there without making an explosion. No explosion, but I'm not going to India. I quit the Peace Corps. In the back of my mind was Vietnam War was starting to grow. People were getting called in. By that time, another year, people were getting called in from Peace Corps service. In other words, they were trained to go to Pakistan or to Bolivia. And because their name came on the list, they were getting called back into the military. I said, this government is training people to work in the slum areas and to work in the farms and at the same time to fight wars in Vietnam. It doesn't know what it's doing. Thank you for the India offer. Sounds good. Always wanted to see India. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm not. I'm going back to Peru. So I stayed on in Peru for another half a year until my tourist visa ran out, and then I was moving from country to country. I went to see my family in Chicago, and you have to remember, we're German-Austrian. My family was terrified. You don't fight with the regime. You don't fight with Adolf. You don't fight with anyone. Don't make trouble. You'll disappear. My family, German-Austrian, were on both sides of the war. And that's why I'm so anti-war, because it's proof, evident, that if you're a human being in a human family, you might be on both sides of the war, killing each other for somebody else. They were on the German side, the Hitler side, the family in Austria, not by choice. They were recruited. They were called in as conscripts. And on the American side, in other words, they'd never faced each other on the battlefield, but psychologically, our family was killing each other, and some died in this war. By that time, I was called into the military for the first examination, 
And at that time, they were just starting to not draft people. Remember, at those years, those early years, we didn't have any soldiers in Vietnam. We had only advisors. And in the newspapers, you'd see advisor number 12 was killed. Advisor number 14 was killed. They were just killing our advisors, who eventually became real soldiers in Vietnam. You know, there was supposed to be a list in every town and every city of who was supposed to go in first, and the millionaires never got called in. Only the working class and the Latinos and the blacks got called in. We were very much against the American invasion of the Dominican Republic a few years before, when they were looking for communists, and they couldn't find any. And that led me to believe that my government was not very clever. They couldn't even find the communists they were looking for, and they were arrogant enough to say, we have the right to invade any country. We wish this Latin America is our backyard. And here we were in Latin America trying to win friends for America. We thought, I'm working for the wrong government. So I left, traveled around in Latin America. My passport ran out. I knew my time was limited. I got this passport in Brazil. I knew I had a couple of years to travel around before my passport ran out again. You know, in Brazil, they didn't have this data computer checks. So hey, here's your passport. I said, I'm a businessman. I can't come in. I sent a friend in to get the passport. He came out with a passport. I thought this wouldn't happen again because suddenly they were going to start putting stuff into the computers. They knew who was a deserter, who was a war resistor. So I had a couple of years. I don't know if it was the CIA or what police knocked on the door frequently, several times, looking for me in Chicago. And my mother proudly said, and she told me later, Oh, you're looking for uh, Bill? He's in the jungles of Brazil. You will never find him. <laughs> and she was proud to say that. And the truth is I was in Rio de Janeiro working for the Brazil Herald. But she put me in the jungles where the, the police would never find me. <laughs> Moved from Brazil to Europe. Tried to come back to my former home country, Austria. My relatives there tried to get me a citizenship, but it took five years. And my passport ran out again before my final investigation and uh, interrogation would take place, before I could become a citizen. And then I read in the papers that Sweden was starting to take war, uh, those who were against the war. No, wait a minute, deserters, only deserters. And I thought I'd take my chance. came up to Sweden and I said, here I am. And some people told me, you have no chance. You're not a war resistor. You are a war resistor, but you're not a deserter. We take only deserters. When I came to Sweden, I actually went to the American embassy because I had about a week left of my passport. And I went to the American embassy and I said, hello, people. I tried to do what I did in Brazil. Hello, businessman Schiller, coming, walking in. Uh, I don't have time to stay. Uh, can I come and pick up my passport tomorrow? I need a new one. A woman came out from behind the, the desk after about 12 minutes and said, what do you think you're doing? You're American deserter, which I wasn't. I was a war resistor, but my name was on a list. You can't get a new passport. You can only get a passport stamped good only for the return to the United States. I said, boy, now they have caught up with me finally. What am I going to do? A week later, I got a letter from the foreign ministry of Sweden saying, we have been informed that your American passport has been um, void. Please come in and get an alien's passport. 
I thought I'd never heard of an alien's passport. What is an alien's passport? Good for the travel for everywhere except to your home country. Because if you don't need it for your home country, you don't need an alien's passport. And that meant, to my great surprise, I could travel. I didn't think I could travel. I thought I was stuck in the Swedish prison for the rest of my life. You can travel. Not easy. I have to say, this passport was a bit flimsy. And after a while of traveling, it looked like I made it myself. And I remember going to England once, London. There was a huge queue. And I was rather in the middle. And when I got there, they looked at this little tattered blue piece of paper. And they said, go to the back of the line. Oh, boy, I had to go to the back of the line. And when everyone went through, this British... A customs man said, ah, war resistor, aren't you, war resistor? Yes, but I had a visa. You had to have a visa for every country. Here's my visa. Okay, okay. And he let me in because I was legal. But they could treat you strangely. And traveling once in Africa, I came to a border, and I was along with a Swede who had a, a valid Swedish passport. He went right in. And here I came with my little tattered blue paper, and fill out the card, nationality. I wrote American and showed him my passport. He was reading the comic book at the time, I remember. He looked at my passport, it said Swedish, even though it looked like I made it myself, and my card said American. He crossed out American and wrote Swedish, and he let me in. In those months while I was waiting for yes or no, thanks to the very strong Swedish peace movement and people like Olaf Palme and others criticizing the American regime for the Vietnam War changed their mind and they took war resistors. We got asylum, about a thousand of us in Sweden, both war resistors and deserters, mostly war resistors. You know, now if you apply for asylum, you can wait for two years. I have colleagues, gay activists who I know are activists, chased by the KGB in Russia, in Belarus, in other places. It takes two years and you get no once or twice or three times and you have to fight. It took me only three months. In those days, three months, and I got permission to stay. So my first job was working in a hospital where I almost spoke no Swedish at all because one, they needed men, they were mostly women, and some of the patients were quite heavy to lift and they were very happy to have some men. And I remember being in this hospital, lifting patients, washing patients, uh, feeding patients. There was one former member of parliament, turned out to be a conservative, and he was in his bed I was brushing his teeth because he had false teeth, brushing his teeth. He turned around to me and said something. And again, I didn't quite understand what he said. And he looked at the ceiling. I remember this still. This is 4,700 years ago. Am I going to die here with only foreigners? Doesn't anybody speak Swedish? And I thought, he's quite right. I don't understand what he's saying. Most of my colleagues are all foreigners. The Swedes didn't like Jobs like this, wa washing the shit off of patients and stuffing pudding and welling and then uh, uh, food into the mouths of people who didn't want to eat. But that year in the hospital helped me a great deal because, one, I learned a bit of Swedish and I met some very good patients. I remember them still today. A woman who could hardly stand didn't want the help. She patted her bed and wanted me to sit down and talk. She wanted some human contact. I remember her today. Matter of fact, I walked by her room. I remember this. She was standing up with the help of some other 
nurses, and she was singing a song from her childhood. So she was happy as a, as a bird singing a song. And she needed this human contact more than the bandages and more than the food and more than the washing. That gave me a great... I thought if these people are surviving at the age of 120 and all the diseases and sick, if they're still in there, and this man who was yelling for foreigners, they had to move his bed out of the room. And he turned to me when I was helping wheel that bed out because they were going to wash the walls or something. He turned to me, the one who was brushing his teeth before. Don't take me away. Please let me stay here. Please. And I said, you're okay. You're coming back. You're coming back. There was a lot of sorrow and tragedy and empathy in those rooms of that hospital. And that gave me a great deal of courage to keep on living because you see we in the war resistors you lost your country you lost your family you lost your identity you weren't sure where you could stay you had a few months of waiting now it's years of waiting and that puts you sometimes down waiting a month after month you don't know what to do run away kill yourself rob a bank you don't know what to do in those months and a lot of my colleagues war resistors were also very helpful in the way is that they were all 18, 19 years old. And because I had traveled around in Latin America several years, I was a bit older. I think I was about 25, 26 when I came here. I was the old man of the group. And some of these were youngsters and really in trouble, never away from the family ever. Brothers and sisters. One guy got a letter. I remember this still. From the mother. You got seven, twelve Brothers and sisters in Alabama, what are you doing in Sweden? Come home and help with the family. Had he tried to go home, he would have been arrested at the airport, at the border. Five years prison. It wasn't easy to go home. and wasn't easy to be in exile. We were considered part of this anti-war movement. We joined in the anti-war demonstrations and had signs saying, Americans against the war. We were a little group, but we marched and had a little newsletter that we printed on a mimeograph machine that we spread out to people who wanted to read it, American War Resister newsletter. We were very much part of this anti-war movement, but things started to go very, very wrong. And it reflected in the Swedish media and in the mentality. Some people were using drugs, American war resistors, and flipped out. One man killed his girlfriend's child in a fit of rage or drug addiction. Got very bad headlines. War resistors, drug users, violent people. One man tried to hijack an airplane to fly back to the United States. All he had to do is go to the embassy and they would give him a ticket to fly back. But he flipped out and thought the only way to get back home out of this hell frozen and dark, was to hijack a plane. Headlines started to be negative, and some people used to say, go. I was standing in this hospital this first year with some of my colleagues, and one of the nurses started to say, look at these headlines. These American war resistors are all trash. They're all druggies. They're all criminals. Throw them out. She didn't know that I was one of them. And my colleague said to me, she doesn't mean you. She doesn't mean you. You're okay. My mother was uh, very supportive. My mother came to Sweden to visit because I couldn't go back to the States. 
came to visit once a year. She was a nurse. She saved her money and came to visit. So I had that contact, not with the rest of the family. My brother came much, much later. But my mother came to... And the last six years of her life, she was given permission to move to Sweden. She and my brother were supposed to share her six months with me, six months with my brother. But she ended up living here in Sweden, so she was here for the six months. My name is Bill Schiller. I used to be an American. I'm now a Swedish citizen, and I've been living here since 1970. Saga is me, Tom Henley. The theme tune is done by birthday boy Anton Beckman. You can find a slightly different version of this story on the podcast This Is Actually Happening, who I collaborated with a few weeks ago. So please check that out. And once again, join me next time for more Saga.